I guess what I want, in anybody who's listening, to all that are listening to this, it is never too late. My oldest client was 86 years old. It's never too late. We can start now and with that kindness like you were mentioning with ourselves of saying, okay, now what? Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living Podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. Hello, my friend. How's your new year going? Are you full steam ahead, or have you already hit some road bumps? <laughs> or, or maybe a foggy patch. Are you having to proceed cautiously with your fog lights on? <sighs> Frankly, that's kind of where I am so far this year, but I am not giving up or giving in so soon. I have some big plans for this year, and I'm really excited about them, so I am not going to let some piddly road bumps stop me. I will forge on with my little tiny baby steps. There, I've said it. And one of the things, by the way, that I'm really excited about for the coming year is the plan that I've made with my good friend Lou Blazer to collaborate on our podcasts. Because over the past couple of years, as we've become friends, we've also become so closely aligned in our mission to rethink what's possible as we age. If you missed last week's episode, go back and give it a listen. Uh, we talk about getting smarter about goal setting. And we also announced that we will be making quarterly appearances on each other's podcasts. And the other thing that I'm super excited about is that this podcast, Late Bloomer Living, is now officially sponsored by Lou Blazer's fantastic newsletter called Midlife Cues. Midlife Cues is a weekly newsletter about intentional living and personal growth in midlife. How spot on is that? Every Sunday is a new issue that comes to your inbox, and Lou explores a specific topic that's relevant to us midlifers, supported by carefully researched resources and tools to help us apply the idea into our lives. It's written and published by Lou, who built a career in corporate America as a management consultant and IT leader. She now focuses her considerable talents on exploring how midlifers like us can be truly happy and feel fulfilled in the second half of our lives. I eagerly look for it every Sunday morning, and I have to tell you, I often get ideas for this podcast from Lou's newsletter. So if you like what you're getting from this podcast, I guarantee you will love Lou's newsletter. You can subscribe at midlifecues.com. And if you're driving right now or you have your hands busy, don't worry. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. So we do have a guest for today's episode, and I'm thrilled to be able to introduce you to Beth Kyle. I met Beth through our mutual friend, Jack Perez, who is the founder of Cool Life, which is a platform for midlife women with a mission to normalize aging. 
Beth and I are both contributing bloggers for Cool Life. So when I met Beth and spoke with her, I knew you needed to hear her story. Beth, real quick recap is that Beth started her career as a registered nurse working with women in labor and delivery, but she found her true calling when in her 40s, she started working with expectant mothers to train them in the practice of hypnobirthing. We'll go into that later. She was awed by the power of hypnosis and loved it so much she became a board-certified hypnotist and opened her own practice. And then a serious car accident in 2013 that could have ended her life became a pivotal event leading her to end her marriage and move to Tucson. She's a woman who embraces the growth that comes with change. And that's why I have her here for you today. Okie dokie, without further ado, here's Beth Kyle. Let's go. Hey, Beth, thanks so much for being with me today. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. Well, it's awesome to have you here. So let's just dive right in. I know that you you started off as, as a nurse, as an RN, right? And I had a little bit be- even before the RN, I was in um working in women's health care okay uh-huh. and so i i worked at a, a women's health center so i would do after they saw the nurse practitioner i would be the person who went over information about any medications birth control i went into schools talked about sexuality choices and contraception and there was a nurse practitioner jeanette hofstetter i remember her last name now and she was an amazing nurse practitioner. What I loved was she connected with the women and her education. And I thought, I'll become a nurse. And that's what led me going into nursing school. And then I worked at a birth center as a gopher, go for this, go for that. Uh-huh. Four, four births, my first 24 hours. And I went hook line. Oh, I know they had to send me home. I'm sorry. She, the reason she just said I know is because my eyes just went boing. Four births in 24 hours on your first day. Yes, four births. And hook, line, and sinker, I wanted to be in this energy. And I um, I think I attended 11 births in a month. They ended up paying me because of just what I did. And I just picked their brains going, so how do you tell this? How do you know that? How's this, that? And this steered me for, I wanted to be with pregnant and birthing women. I was very, very clear about that. So that proceeded. So I've been working with women in a very for a very long time. And then being a nurse was one of those times that things shifted because there was something else that I needed to open in my life. How long were you doing the nursing work? And were you on like the women's floor? Were you were you on the maternity ward as a nurse? So I worked high-risk obstetrics for a year. Um, I just, it wasn't, I just had questions about different things, Mm -hmm. but learned an awful lot. And then I went to another hospital, worked labor and delivery within a hospital setting, strictly labor and delivery, did that part-time for a year, and then full-time in Philadelphia, Methodist hospital that no longer does um, births. And I did that for two years. And then I went as a community nurse for 14 years. And I was in the element where it was one-to-one. I got to know most of the women who were on my caseload and got to be with them during their pregnancies, 
I wasn't there during their birth unless I was working at the birth center. I attended births there. And then I would see them afterwards. I loved it because, and I think this is throughout, this is woven into who I am and what I do is I imparted to women, your prenatal care is what I'm doing, midwife or the doctor. It's what you do. How are you eating? How are you taking care of? That's yours, not mine. Mm -hmm. That's so, so amazing. At what point, I know you started, did you leave nursing to start the hypnobirthing? No, that was concurrent. The um, hypnobirthing, when I worked at the birth center of Wilmington, they had a hypnobirthing instructor and I got to meet her and I had clients, I, I attended births at the birth center who were using hypnobirthing. I had just said to somebody, I'm going to become a hypnobirthing instructor. Can I stop you for one second? Because I Absolutely. just want to ask, yeah. I want to get clear as to what is hypnobirthing? <laughs> well, that's a good place to start. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm so used to it. So it's like, of course, people know about it. So hypnobirthing is the Mongan method. That's the certification I have. And it is using hypnosis as the cornerstone for women to be calm, relaxed, and in that way, the body's awareness of discomfort or pain shifts. And so it is learning hypnosis with this curriculum for women to be aware that they had choices, to use their own abilities to um, bring themselves into hypnosis, which is not rocket science. It isn't. Mm -hmm. And that's the curriculum. And then showing them videos of women having hypnobirthing births. And it amazed me when I saw that during the training, I learned things in my certification I never learned as a nurse in the mm. hospital yeah. and in nursing school. Oh, so. I totally believe it. I mean, traditional medicine is amazing and fantastic and limited like anything, yeah. right? Yeah. Any any particular practice, you you know, you dive into that thing, I think, and then and and to the to the exclusion of so many other possibilities and things. So I can totally see where you would never have been trained on any of this, right? No, not yeah. at all. Yeah. So that that led me so I did that because um oh, the person came in, person teaching hypnobirthing came into the coffee shop that I had announced to this friend, I'm going to become a hypnobirthing instructor. In comes Anne, she says, I'm leaving the area. Do you want to become a hypnobirthing instructor? You'll teach at the birth center. The fee will be paid by the class that's coming up and you have permission to start teaching that immediately. I was able to do that with the organization. And then she said, do you want it? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and then well, looked at her and said, yeah, I didn't have to make a phone call, didn't have to do anything. Wow, and I that's loved amazing. it. It was, it was really, um, and then that became the point of, in hypnobirthing, you teach the curriculum. You're not certified to be a hypnotist or hypnotherapist. And so if a woman had issues that were coming into about her birthing, meaning she had a previous birth experience, that somehow she felt overwhelmed, wasn't able to process it mentally, emotionally, physically, energetically, that's one way of defining trauma. Mm -hmm. If a woman had been inappropriately touched younger in her life or felt she had no power or whatever, I wanted to be that person. And that's why I certified in um, November 2002 
I certified as a um, hypnotherapist and have been in practice for over 19 years now. That's amazing. So we, I think when we first spoke um, before before today, I think you were in your 40s when you started doing the hypnobirthing, right? Yeah. And then how long was it before you went and, and got certified for hypnotherapy after that? February of 2002 was hypnobirthing. November was hypnosis. Okay. Training. So really close real, on the heels of that. Wow. 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 Yeah. I and, and when did more. you start your general practice? I had my first client two weeks or a week after I came home from my training. I emailed a friend. I was, um, I said, uh, you're going to want to work with me. What do you want to work on? <laughs> so she let me know the changes that occurred for her translated in her life. Even now, you know, 19 years later and I knew this is what I wanted to do. So I started to see clients. And then another change that happened, it's kind of like these things that if we look at going, so what happened then Mm -hmm. is my then husband was deployed. He was in the military as a reservist for the medical branch and unexpectedly was deployed for 13 months. We thought it was going to be for two or three. No, it was 13 months. And I wanted to do the hypnotherapy full time. And that's when I changed. And the person who left the area, who initiated the whole thing about my training, moved back to the area. So we opened up a practice together. And so everything expanded at that point. Yeah. And you had kids all during this time, right? I did. I didn't when I was in nursing school. I, but when you, at what point did, how old were you when you had your first? I was 33 and 36. 33 and 36, yeah. And so you managed to do to do all this changing of your experience as a nurse and moving into hypnobirth and all this while working with kids. That's a that's a pretty big pivot. Were you scared at all or were you just excited? You know, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. Scared. Well, I think Jim being deployed for 13 months was a challenge. That was huge. How old were the kids at that point? They were uh, nine and 12. It was me, the house, the dog and a new business. Well, going full time. Yeah. So and and Jim's brother unexpectedly died during that time. And then his mom who lived in Pennsylvania nearby where we were, um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So all of that happened. So I don't think I was afraid. I just knew I was done working as a visiting nurse and I needed something different. So I think there was just a lot of change going on and single parenting. Yeah, it was a big time. Yeah. So afraid? No, I think there's there's a weave in it. The core of how can I be of support? I had a client many years ago. She said, "You're a midwife of the soul." Mm. I thought it was going to be a midwife, a midwife in this lifetime, and my my hypnosis, the work that I do, I am midwifing as people give birth to who they truly are. In whatever way I serve, whatever way is needed, that's what I do. That's who I am. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can see that. 
I can see the the energy that goes along with what you're doing and how that you know you know you can tell when somebody's doing something they love right yes yes absolutely yes. so there so there's one more thing that you know that I think was very pivotal that I may want to make sure that we talk about was your car accident um, because that led to some big midlife changes for you further on down the line right absolutely so i was already aware that i felt alive in all aspects of my life except in my marriage and i'm not putting the blame on jim we co-created we got into patterns with each other and that's how we created our relationship not very conscious which a lot of us do because we don't have other tools and so when the car accident happened and i have july 28th of 13 i got um t-boned on i-95 didn't mean to be didn't mean to be on i-95 pouring rain like a monsoon and somebody was speeding up i wasn't right hand lane and she t-boned me and i went across two lanes of traffic headed to the median cement median mm -hmm. and in those few seconds one i didn't want to kill my husband i didn't want the air back because there's acid in it and i just i didn't want that and they're thinking what do i this is all in seconds what do i do and i went well if it's snow you would you would go into it and move and i so can i be explicit in my speaking because you know yes and i went fuck this is rain <laughs> and i just go like this on the steering column and ended up hitting the the cement median with the uh driver's side rear end of my highlander and you know, you get that breath in anytime there's a trauma, you breathe in and that exhale never leaves the body. Mine didn't for some time. And then it was later on that day that a really good friend of mine said, you could have been killed. Getting, yeah, you could have been killed. And I took that in and that's when I could, could I've made my marriage work? Absolutely. There are ways we could have, but I wanted to be alive in all areas, including a relationship that had commitment to it, whether it be a marriage or whatever, and it wasn't there. And when Jessica said you could have been killed, I didn't want to die that way. I didn't, I couldn't. So it took me a year. It wasn't like, you know, oh, no, it took me a year because I thought, okay, let me, let me work with it. Let me see. Plus, I wasn't able to, with the trauma of the, the car accident, to even address that because I didn't feel safe already. Yeah. And how long had you been married by this point? I mean, we got, um, okay, somebody will do the math because it won't be me. I got, we, we had been married in um, 87. Yeah. And we lived together wow. seven years before then. So I guess 1980. Yeah, so it took you 90, a year because, my goodness. Yeah. You 33 got, years. You'd been together probably most of your life by that point. Absolutely. Yeah, we also not together. good at math, so I'm not going to do the math either. But it, um, <laughs> it was about 33. It was 33 years we'd been together from living together wow. to this time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we did. There's so many things that I 
now I'm more aware of that I had no idea back then. And I blog about it. I blog on intimacy, romance, sexuality. And these are things that I, because it's more than that. It's all of who we are that entered that phase, that aspect of ourselves. And so, yeah, I needed a year. And the pivotal time for me was another good friend. I had gone out to lunch with her and I said, I don't feel, I feel alive. I am alive in all areas of my life, except my marriage. I'm going to give it a year. It felt like I needed to give it a cycle of something. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, even if Jim did the work and for her, the framework was counseling, Mm -hmm. will he be where you need your partner to be? Well, here's another inhale. Then I went, like the answer was no. And the out breath, I said, I'm getting a divorce. Like I hadn't planned on it. I didn't plan on saying it. And I went, oh God, in that time frame, that was, um, that probably took me two months to kind of sit with before telling him we're getting divorced. Two months of torture, I'm sure. You know, I... It was hard because I didn't want to hurt him either. Right. Yeah. But neither of us was doing well in this environment. And I didn't want it for him. I didn't want it for me. And so that was June of 14. And yeah, and there's been other changes and shifts along with all this as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how hard that would be, you know, all those years. How do you walk away from that and how do you do it without without destroying and honoring a little bit of what was there, right? Cuz you didn't Absolutely. Right? You oh, you want to yeah. walk away from something like that. I imagine it sounds like you you love him and have respect for him and but how do so you the love i'm not so sure okay I mean, okay you know, i'm I... going to be very honest we've been yeah. separated since the, like i said the june of 14 mm-hmm. um he didn't want a divorce it 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 worked for both of us and then i picked my life up and i moved to the desert in tucson arizona uh-huh. and we were still separated and it wasn't until october of 20 that I let him know that I was proceeding with the divorce and then it went through in January of 21. So January a long 2nd. process it to was actually a long make pro- it complete. Yeah. Well, it worked. It yeah. worked for both of us, you know, in, in that way. And I also, Jim is a good man. I have, he is a good man. What had happened and I, I'm being responsible for this part of what I contributed I had made Jim wrong for not being who I wanted him to be. And I don't think I'm unusual. Mm, No, certainly not. And what I had done was in making him wrong is I would be critical instead of really, there's a lot that I've learned since then. And I couldn't in that relationship, in that, in that phase, in that place I needed. There's other things I learned along since that time but he became defensive. That's how it felt to me. Mm. So when I said something, I felt like I was walking on eggshells. I felt like I had to say it a certain way. No one else in my life did I do that with. And I could feel it from him and I didn't like him. I didn't like how that was going for him and I didn't like how it felt for me. 
Mm-hmm. And that's not what I wanted for either one of us. So it wasn't like I hate you or this, that, and the other. It was we had run the course of our relationship. And it took him, um, I think in the last six months, he said to me that it was the best thing I'd ever done because his life, he's now living his life very differently. And I'm thrilled for him. I'm thrilled for him. And we wouldn't have been able to do it together. And I was hoping that that time would come for him. So um, it was huge. It was, and I say this, I say this because it's true for me. I would have died had I stayed. Not physically, but who knows? I know enough about how emotionally and what's going on, how it shows up and how it can show up in our body for our attention to be on mm-hmm. and healing. But my spirit would have died. So you talk about, I think, one of the obstacles for women in this culture and midlife because of what we've grown up with. I'm not so sure how different it is for younger women, to be honest is that being aware of what other people need we 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 drank the kool-aid it's how we were taught many of us that we're supposed to take care of other people and we're low on the totem pole other you know you put others before you how could you be selfish you think whatever things we grew up with so that was the big thing of i cannot do this anymore to myself and i couldn't i couldn't be participating in that because I had changed at that point where I wasn't being critical, where I had shifted, but I had done, and I told it, told Jim, I did such a good job being that critical person. You could no longer hear me when I did change. Mm -hmm. I can't help but think about this massive change that you made that led you to Tucson. And the the courage that goes into ending a marriage, I'm just going to say it takes courage. Not everybody's got that or can tap into it until I think it's uh, having that, that car accident, it taps you into your own sense of mortality, right? Yes. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to shake us up and, and, and wake us up and set us on a new path is to think about how short life is and what do we want it to look like, right? Am I on target with what was happening for you? That's exactly what, that exactly. It was more more my mortality. And with Jessica saying you could have been killed, that was just like, and then you walk, and then was, you realize you're walking around like a dead woman already anyway, right? Like in, 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 a way, marriage, in that, in that not, aspect, right. right? You have all yes. this other stuff going yeah. And then all it becomes unacceptable. Yeah. So how, yeah. what did that do for you to to then to make that change? Where how are you now? Wow. Um I jokingly but seriously say I came to Tucson to be sandblasted. <laughs> Having grown up in the Southwest, I grew up in El Paso, Texas completely know the sandblasting thing because every spring is like in El Paso there was no there was not a real delineation of the seasons but you knew it was March when you were being sandblasted 
because that's when the winds would kick up and you'd be wearing shorts because it's already hot and the sand on the back of your legs oh my gosh it's a sensation i'll never okay so you came to tucson (laughs) sorry i went you you really tapped me in there (laughs) oh no well i didn't know i was coming here to be sandblasted quite frankly i had somebody who was doing astrology charts for me an amazing gifted person and he would always say you need to be living where you're supposed to be living you don't want to be under a pluto saturn line i know i don't know how many listeners understand that i was under both back east you don't want either one i'm intersected and he was just saying that if i stayed because i was coming to a time called the second saturn return which is around 58 59 years of age you need to be living where you're supposed to be living And so he strongly encouraged, I got a a particular chart with relocational and Tucson was one of them. Came here, I felt the confirmation intuitively, I knew this is where to come. And it's kind of like, you don't see what you don't see. I don't think, I I did not know I was coming here to be sandblasted. Um, Tell me a little bit more about what it means to come, to go there to be sandblasted. What what was the experience when you got there? Sandblasted including, included, everything was new. I didn't know how to be in a new area. I hadn't been in one for decades. Mm. And it was exhausting. When I went to networking events, everybody was new, new names, new histories, new places, new whatever. And when I left my house, it took me an hour and a half to go to places that I realized took me. Actually, it was five minutes down the road. I didn't know that they were all in one place. I've been there. Yeah. Have you? Oh, good. I I think I'd be alone, but thank you for, thank you for that. And I was in deep grieving for a year and a half. There were things that changed left that I, that were endings. And a friend said to me that I lost all my reference points. I lost the four seasons. I lost the green. I lost the rain, monsoons, rattlesnakes, scorpions, which I've been stung by one. Um, Javelinas, coyotes, uh, monsoons, flash flooding, washes for the flash flooding, all these things that were so different that I had no bearing, none. I lost so many. And I realized I did a meditative journey, October of 17. In it, I was told, you're there to, you're here to be sandblasted. I said, can I be exfoliated? (laughs) To which I was told, sure, whatever you want, you're still being sandblasted. It sounded painful. And it was in order for me, it's kind of like the Jews being in the desert for 40 years. They needed to lose slavery. They needed another generation brought up. At least this is what I remember reading in the Passover Seder. They needed the generation or generations that had been born into slavery, they needed those children born into freedom who could then step into freedom. Wow, I have never thought about that aspect of the 40 years in the desert, but holy cannoli. Yeah. It's that generational, um, the trauma of slavery and, and, Wow. Okay. You come, you completely just blew my mind. So, so for you, it's been six years and now you have plans to come back East. Does that put you back under the, sorry, I don't know much about. No, no, um, I'm not, I'm not moving to the Northeast. That's the place I can visit. It's a place that when I'm editing 
writing I'm doing, great place, because there's heavy restrictions and energy. I'm looking Southern, I'm looking to North Carolina. Uh Uh, It's green, it's got water, it's got trees, it's got bears, it's got other things too to it, you know, fine. Um, But yeah, it's what I'm aware of is that the sandblasting ended, I wanna say probably a year ago and I've been in the polishing phase. Mm-hmm. And in order for me, just like using that reference of the of Exodus, of the Jews leaving Egypt and being in the being in the desert before they could go to what was called is referred to as the promised land or the mm-hmm. ma- land of milk and honey, they had to lose that. It's kind of like if we think about being reborn. Mm-hmm in order for us to move into another phase, as you said, you know, you, you look about midlife women, what made that change? What's been this is that something had to die. And, and that doesn't mean that there isn't sadness, but there needs to be like the Phoenix there's death and rebirth. Yeah. It's for the, that's everywhere. I mean, that, that death and rebirth it's in, it's, it's in nature. We, you know, yes. we we cycle things die, they go back to the earth and feed the new things that are coming up. And it is just part of the existence of being human and being on this yes. planet. And But we've been made afraid of yes. what we're losing. Again, the cultural yes. part. I think of um, Mount St. Helens when it blew, I think back in the 70s or the 80s. Oh my God, it only went to one side and what it's gonna be, these trees, it's gonna be desolate. What they found is that there were seeds um, in the ground that needed heat to burst open. The canopy stopped these trees from ever growing because they overshadowed. Mm-hmm. So the topography, the, the, the vegetation changed because there was this shift. And I think when we're when we're not connected to whatever number of seasons we have where we live, when we're not connected to that there's a um, shifting and changing and renewal and death and, and rebirth and all of that, it's very easy to get scared because then we have a very limited frame time frame that we're looking at because this tells you nothing this tells you so much more when it's greater and bigger than that we have a whole different perspective and worldview because of it yeah it's it's how to get past the fear of change i you know that's the that's i think the big the big challenge i think we all fear change dread change and yet it's the only constant so how do you learn to embrace change to dance with it to to move through it to move with it yeah and with it yeah is that would can i share something with that yeah please um so i shared with you before we started the recording is that my parents separated when i was four years old newly minted four-year-old. So with that change, leaving where I had lived, moving to Brooklyn, New York, where my mother was from, moved with my sister, my older sister and my mom, moved in with her parents. My dad stayed back in Delaware. Fear of men leave. Now, did that intellectually make sense to a four-year-old and it wasn't articulated like that, but men leave. 
So abandonment issues. Oh yeah. That was a wound that I, that I had. So, you know, I shared with you that, the, you know, the work that I do has informed my own life. I, you know, it, it's, it's part of me. It's not separate. And by healing those aspects about the abandonment, what my four-year-old made it mean, because at four, <laughs> a right. four-year-old is going to think, and it's not, and you can't tell, this is the intellect, the intellect going, well, you know, it turned out for the good. It had nothing to do with you, blah, 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 blah. The intellect has no impact there, mm -hmm. but I needed to work in the sub with my subconscious mind using hypnosis to be with that four-year-old who thought there was something wrong with her, mm -hmm. that if only she had been more lovable, that, she, that I was the reason why they divorced. Now that is reasonable. That is so what a four-year-old is going to think, even older. The analytic can't change it. So by really clearing that and healing that in different ways, it has been a way that, does it mean it doesn't come up at times? There are times it goes, oh, wow. But it takes more for that to be, to that, for that to resonate, for that to trigger. And I more quickly can go, I know that's the little one, my four-year-old next to my heart going, I got this, honey. I've got it. Mm -hmm. You just stay next to my heart. And because I have created pathways for this, these responses, it shifts really quickly and it and other things do come up it doesn't mean that it's it sometimes it, it, it takes a hell of a lot more but it's another layer and level of healing and clearing and understanding that it allows me to have so did i answer your question i might have circled no yeah 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 you did it's that we make you know I think what I'm hearing is is the idea of uh, all of us have things happen as we're growing and, and, and our child mind, our child self yeah. makes decisions about that and, and forms its own ways of protecting us, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And until we come to be aware of that we're doing that, yeah. then we don't have any power over it. Right. We have, we are not able to change it because it's still in motion Yeah, and we can't think ourselves out of it to read more to this, that, and the other. I've never met a person to be a non-smoker who said, really, they're bad for me. Never. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they know it and then they feel shame because they know better. But yes, you said it so well. It's the child's perception that makes those, has thoughts, the perception and the, um, than decisions that are made about how the world is. And we, it's, I'm just thinking about the people I've had such on um, the honor to midwife them in the work is that this is part of what we do because that discovery is aha, like they didn't know it. And then we work with it in such a deep way that something else is created. And that plan starts at a very young age, not consciously aware of. So it's such, so when we, whether it be a car accident, whether it be a bump, whatever stirs the awakening to kind of go, where am I in my life? Like, how did I get here type of thing? 
those are the opportunities for shift. It's an opportunity for something to be different. And it doesn't mean we're going to took me how many years to do all this and how to not judge ourselves for the time mm. we need. Exactly. Right. We, the judging is, is I just call it the constant, the thought loop in my head of, you know, feeling bad about something, then judging myself for feeling bad about something, feeling bad about that feeling. <laughs> it's like, yes. a, it just is like a, a, a downward spiral into, into awfulness. <laughs> it is. And it's a pattern we learn very young because we didn't come into this life with the judgments we had to be taught by people who also use that framework unknowingly. This is, these things have been passed down for many generations. They just didn't start with us, but it's so easy when we don't have somebody say the emperor has no clothes. Let's look at the school system as a framework. Henry Ford started it. It's a whole other conversation, not going there. And it's been around for so long, we don't know that there was a time before it. This is lost to us. This is what we know. Remember, we talked about how much are we going to look at? If we look here, you could miss that there's a whole bigger context that it started decades, even centuries earlier that we are still living in. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. I I, I think I think we probably are at a good stopping point. And I, I think what I've taken from the conversation with you is the idea of accepting and being kind to that four-year-old and, and yet the idea of, of telling it, thank you, and I, and I got this, is that the nut of the work that you do, do you think? Or what do you think is the nut? Going to the root cause, mm -hmm. going to the root of what, what is it about? Mm -hmm. And that allows next, when that work comes, when that happens, that little one working with the little one is an aspect to it. It's part of the process. It's the awareness of the perceptions, not through the intellect. It is what's the little one make it mean? That coming to light, that clarity, that understanding to what are the triggers, which are relationships, um, certain di relationship dynamics, situations, and feelings. And then because it's a multi-phase process that I use for this reason, and then it is about incorporating the younger aspect in, okay, we can create differently now. What shall we do? <laughs> oh my goodness. And okay, that, I, that is yes. wonderful. We can Isn't create it? differently now. What shall yeah. we do? I'm getting goosebumps. Yes. 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 Yeah. I, I think yeah. that is the perfect way to go out, Beth. Oh my goodness. So thank, thank you so much for sitting very... down with me, sharing your story um, and all your experience. Knowledge. It has been a pleasure and holding this space for this conversation. Thank you so much. And I guess what I want in anybody who's listening to all that are listening to this, it is never too late. 
My oldest client was 86 years old. It's never too late. We can start now. And with that kindness, like you were mentioning, with ourselves of saying, okay, now what? I feel very honored doing the work I do. And yeah, it enriches my life as well. How can people get in touch with you to learn more about what you do? Sure. Well, my website is my name. It's bethkyle.com. And on my website, there's an icon that says discovery session. Clicking on that will put you on to my online scheduler. And so I offer a complimentary 30-minute phone consultation. And I work virtually everywhere. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Same here. Well, there you have it. I love the imagery Beth uses of going to Tucson to get sandblasted. That's what it can feel like when we're going through enormous change. We lose our sense of normalcy. Our usual landmarks are suddenly gone and it can take more time than we'd like to get where we wanna go. It can be scary to be lost, right? Remember the days before GPS when you'd get directions to a place and still you'd get lost? Here's the thing though. The process of finding your way to that place means you probably won't get lost going there again. Sometimes we need the experience of feeling lost and then finding our way to truly learn something about ourselves. It always makes me think of the quote from Lord of the Rings, I believe, uh, not all who wander are lost. I think it's Gandalf who said that. I mean, you can call it being lost or you can call it finding your way. Which one serves you better? There's a little something for you to think about as you step into this new year with all your hopes and dreams. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.